I'd like to turn your Bibles to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Actually, I think what we'll do is before we get to 9, let's go to chapter 1. I want to make sure you see the context of this particular passage. If you go to chapter 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and I'll go down to, uh, talks about uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. So that's chapter 1, verse 1. And then you see Nebuchadnezzar in his second year in chapter 2. In chapter 3 is the image of gold. We're not told exactly what year that is. Chapter 4 is a little time later. And we know that at the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar dies. Now, when it says chapter 5, in chapter 5 it says, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast. That occurred about 20 years later. Now, the reason that's important is because just get the name, Belshazzar. Now, if you go to chapter 7 and chapter 8, it just says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, what is that? Um, I want to say that's about 14 years. Yeah, 14 years. Now, the reason that what I'm trying to say is this. Between chapter 4 and chapter 5 is inserted chapter 7 and 8. Like 14 years before chapter 5, verse 1, is when chapter 7 occurs. So it's there in that time that Daniel had his first vision. And then what we looked at last week, chapter 8 is in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, the ram and gold, which we looked at last, uh, last week. And that's 12 years before chapter 5, verse 1. So what you really see is this. You have a whole lot about Nebuchadnezzar, chapters 1 through 4. Then you have chapter 7, 14 years earlier, from chapter 5 and verse 1. See, when you get to chapter 5, verse 1, there's been 20 years Well, what Daniel does is he goes back and he says, well, let me tell you, I had a dream 14 years ago, and then I had another vision 12 years ago, the golden ram, talking about the uh, Medo-Persian and Greek empires. And then then you have Belshazzar, and then the feast, and when, you know, they're handwriting on the wall. And in verse 30, chapter 5, verse 30, it says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. He's dead. Babylonian Empire is done as of right there. And Darius, the Mede, Mede and Persians, received the kingdom having about 62, being about 62 years old. Transfer of power. Remember the golden statue? Head of gold, Babylon. Next one, Medo-Persia. Now we're entering the second phase of the, the final kingdoms of the world. Chapter 6, it pleased Darius. Same guy is in chapter 5, verse 31. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. And then you remember the whole thing. Remember what happens? And there was three that were over them, which were, one of which was Daniel, but Daniel was a godly man, and basically because of jealousy and envy, they tried to get rid of Daniel. Why? How? Because they made an, an edict through the king that you could only pray to and worship him versus any other God, but verse 10, 
It says, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. What? As was his custom since early days. He just kept going on doing what he always did, making petitions three times that particular day. Verse 13 repeats it. So apparently he was consistent. He was very consistent. Now, why do I bring this up? Second part of the statue, the, show, uh, the, 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 um, the bronze, or the uh, silver. Medo-Persia. Here we are. Now, this is, the, this is Darius. Now, if you go to chapter 9, I believe we actually get a glimpse into Daniel's life, his prayer life. And it says this, verse nine, chapter 9, verse 1, in the first year of Darius. So chapter 9 and chapter 6 are sequential. Okay, In other words, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. Why? Because he was faithful to worship the true God and pray to him. Chapter 9, verse 1, in the first year of Darius. By the way, I think, I believe, that the, uh, the incident of the lion's den comes first, and then during that year, after Daniel is accused, thrown into the lion's den, brought out Darius, then this happens, this part of the... Um, the Bible. I think chapter 9 actually follows chapter 6, probably within weeks or months. Very close. We, well, we know within, within a year, because it says the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. So again, I, I think that's very, very important, because we see, we're going to actually see, what did Daniel pray? What was Daniel's prayer life like? This is one of the most uh, unique, one of the, the, the greatest examples of prayer in all of Scripture. And it goes from chapter, I mean, basically uh, uh, verse 4, and I prayed, to verse 19. By the way, this leads up to one of, uh, the, one of the most, now in the Old Testament, may be the most important uh, prophetic uh, parts of all of Scripture, which is verses 20 to the end of the chapter. So we go from the, the, one of the greatest prayers in the Old Testament to one of the greatest prophetic passages of the Old Testament, all found within Daniel chapter 9. So let's look at the setting for Daniel's prayer. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. And I think that idea of made king wasn't because... I think he's the same man as Cyrus, the king. I think Darius is just, uh, it's like how we call our leader president or England calls him prime minister. Darius was a generic term for the guy in charge. Actually, there's five Dariuses in scripture. So you, you know there's a number of Dariuses. He's, uh, Ezra has another Darius. But the point is, is this. He was made king. Why? Because what is the theme of Daniel? God is in charge. You see that over and over again. We, we pointed that out a number of times. The point is, he was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Why? Because God's in charge. He's not the one in charge. Look at this, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Now, the, verses 1 and 2 give us like the summary or the setting of the prayer. Let me point out just three simple things that we find in verse 1 and 2. The first is this, that Daniel, though he was a prophet himself, 
Nevertheless, he found it important to read and study the scriptures. I mean, it's a simple point, but it's right there. He's saying the first year I understood by the books. <laughs> He's getting into the, into the scriptures. By the way, books plural, because at that time, obviously the, the entire book, the Bible, 66 books had not yet been accumulated together. All, the, all they had was the old, old historical and, well, he said, the, the book he's referring to, uh, the one book there is the book of Jeremiah. But he was studying the Bible. He was being instructed by the scriptures. In other words, Daniel, though a prophet, was going back to the book. I think of ourselves. This is such an, uh, an admonition to us that we get into the word of God. Remember what the Israelites were told in the book of Joshua as they are entering that hostile land of Canaan? Joshua 1.9, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it, what? Day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Why? Because then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. Are you a person that gets into the book? Here's Daniel, a godly man, a prophet, one who had received many revelations from God, and yet he is still needing to get into the book. He is feeding his soul on the word of God. If Daniel needed to get into the book, so much more we should. But why, do we get, why are we so inconsistent in that? Why are we so inconsistent when it comes to getting into the scriptures? At least many are. I think John Piper hit it right on the nose. He summed up the problem well when he stated it this way, quote, the weakness of our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, but because we keep ourselves, quote, stuffed with other things, end quote. Yeah, we stuff ourselves with too many other things. So we don't have the appetite to get into God's word and to fellowship with him, and to meditate on his principles. It's boring. It's, it, I, give me something quick. We're a quick society, and unfortunately, we're a very, not only ungodly society, but we're a very um, shallow society, very shallow. And yet, I hear it even from Christians, you know. Like, get to the point. You know what? That actually, when you say that, it actually says a lot about you. You know what really destroys concentration is all these other inputs. And, and I, I really think, I, um, I think we have to really be careful all the other inputs that we allow, all the media, all the, because there's all this stuff and it's all this stuff of other things. And it ends up just making us not really spend time with our God. And we become shallow. And after you become shallow, you become carnal. And after being shallow and carnal, you become sinful. And, you're, and why don't I have the peace like I used to have? We've got to get back into the book. Look at the second thing, though. Daniel not only studied the scripture, but God gave him, I mean, directed him to a, a specific passage that not only spoke to his need, but comforted him. See, it says, uh, specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. And then he actually told us what that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. In other words, 605 is when Nebuchadnezzar the first time came into, into Jerusalem and took some captives. And that was when Daniel left. That's 605. But the question was, now Daniel's been in this land for 60 plus years. And I'm sure he's wondering, like, 
And in his devotions, I think it was in his devotions, he's reading along in God's Word. He's, he's reading in Jeremiah. And, now, and he comes to this passage that says, and it's going to be 70 years. That's how long God is going to chasten Israel and take them out of the land. In other words, once he gets to 70 years, you know what that does? It gives him insight and it gives him comfort. It's not going to be forever. God has not forsaken his people. There's a plan. The plan's being executed. I'm here. God's going to bring him back. And that's exactly what happened. Isn't that how it happens in, in the Word of God when you get into the Word of God? It's not just the Word of God, but he meets a specific need, gives you a specific uh, understanding and a need in your life and gives you comfort, gives you encouragement. That's what happened to Daniel. He was reading the Bible. He was having devotions, as it were. And he realized that he already knew already, but it was confirmed that God was sovereign. God had a plan, and the plan was being executed. And as he said, the last part of verse 2, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. There would be a 70-year period, and 60-plus years had already taken place. By the way, that passage is in Jeremiah 25, if you want to go there, or just write it down, verse 8 through 11. It's a very, very important passage on what we call the Babylonian captivity. It says in verse 8, Jeremiah 25, verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words. This is why I'm saying this. Talking to Israel, you have not heard my words. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Now think about that. He calls that wicked king, because this was before he got converted. My servant. Actually, I think he calls uh, Cyrus my shepherd. What is he saying? These are my tools. He's my servant. You could say the same thing about uh, Putin in Russia. Uh, Ahmadinejad in Iran. These are my servants. These are my servants. Obama is my servant. Or let's say it respectfully, President Obama is my servant. So he says, Nebuchadnezzar is one of my servants and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a per or perpetual desolations. <laughs> you know, people look at the Jerusalem, <laughs> that was one time a great city. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of a bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp. I mean, he's just saying all the great things of life and marriage. I'm going I'm to remove all the happiness that was there at one time by my servant Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 11, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. I mean, they're going to look at this and say, I can't believe that this was, the, you know, this was the place that God had blessed. It's going to be like an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That was a promise. Now, if, you're in, if you are in Jeremiah, go to Jeremiah 29. Because then he, he, uh, he says what's going to happen after that. Verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed. Now, after this is completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. That's Jerusalem. I'm going to take you out. 
And then I'm going to bring you back again. And it's going to be at the 70-year mark. Daniel's reading this. And then through his devotions, he's, he gets encouraged. By the way, the next verses are ones actually were read earlier today. Um, we use them often for us, and they have an application that way. But this is directly for Israel. This is God saying, For I know the thoughts that I think about you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. We know it's Israel. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. By the way, the first part of that has been accomplished back then after the 70-year captivity. But now we're seeing the entire nation coming back to the land of Israel. So there's actually a two-part fulfillment, I believe. But the point is, is this. After 70 years are completed, I'm going to bring it back. Daniel reads that and he says, man, we're on the 65th year, 67th year. So again, I want you to get the context. 605, they're taken away. Eight years later, there's another uh, deportation. And then finally, in 586, Jerusalem is completely uh, uh, destroyed. There... Daniel is in, in Babylon, and now we're on around the 67th year of a 70-year total amount of time. And he's seeing that the captivity is coming to an end. Now, Daniel, by this point, is around 85, 86 years old. He's a very old man. By the way, he knows that he himself is not going to return to Jerusalem. He doesn't. He stays in, in uh, Babylon. But he's, he's seeing that, you know what, God is going to start working. He is going to bring his people back. By the way, many people think because, because of this understanding, now think of the context. Darius has just allowed his number one man to go through the lion's den. Daniel then reads what's going to ultimately happen in Jeremiah 25 and 29. 70 years. We're at 67 Many commentaries, this is extra biblical, by the way, but many commentaries surmise that what happened was after coming out of the lion's den and seeing Jehovah provide as far as protection, that it swayed Darius's heart because he's the one that allows the Jews to go back. So it's, I think it was, it was most likely God working a miracle in Daniel's life that also allowed Daniel to present to the king, you know, these are God's chosen people. And God wants this done. And this is where it's found in Scripture. And apparently that's how Darius had the, the move of his heart to allow the people to go back. You see that over in Ezra. By the way, let me, say, let me answer a question. Why did Jeremiah predict 70 years? Why was it 70 years? Why was it not 100 years, 300 years? After all, in Egypt, they were there 400 years. This is why God had instructed his people not only to observe the weekly Sabbath, for themselves, but also to give the land the Sabbath rest every seventh year. That was part of the law that was found in Leviticus 25. Apparently, Israel deprived the land of the 70 Sabbaths. Thus, they were driven into captivity for 70 years until finally the land itself had rest. If you want to have um, you know, proof of that, if you go to Second Chronicles, or write this down. Let me just read this for you for time's sake. 
2 Chronicles 36, this is what he says. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. This kind of, in Chronicles, Chronicles uh, Nebuchadnezzar carrying them off to Babylon. Where they became servants to him, that's Nebuchadnezzar, and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Medo-Persia. Verse 21. This is why. This is why they were brought off into Babylonian captivity. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. I mean, it's right there. You know what? God had told Israel, part of the law is you, you let the land rest every seventh. They disregarded it first year, seven, you know, seven years. Oh, nothing seemed to happen. 14 years on. 21, keep going. Violating, leaving the land to be desolate. I mean, uh, let it enjoy its Sabbath rest. And then finally, after 70 times of doing that, 400 plus years, what did God say? You have disobeyed me. You are going to be brought into captivity so that what I told you about the land would be fulfilled. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing. See, this is, what, this is the application. Sometimes we do a sin and we disregard God's word and we go down the path and we kind of veer and we think, well, everything seems to happen okay. Nothing seems to be happening in my life. God doesn't forget. If there's anything in, the, in, in this illustration of Israel is God doesn't forget. And so they're sent off into captivity because of their sinfulness and one specific reason, because they didn't allow the land uh, to rest, which is just, it's just uh, reminiscent of all their other idolatry. By the way, when they came out of Babylonian captivity, those 70 years, they went into other sins, but they never ventured back into idolatry. That was the one sin that was resolved in Israel's heart. They remained true to Jehovah. They may not have obeyed him, but they didn't venture down the path of idolatry. I think of an illustration when it comes to the solidness of God's word. The captain of the ship looked into the dark night and saw a faint light in the distance. Immediately he told his signalman to send a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly a return message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angered. His command had been ignored. So he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. I'm just thinking about something. I shouldn't be thinking about something. Soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I, I am a seaman, third class Jones. Immediately the captain sent a third message, knowing the fear it would evoke. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. Then the reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> yeah, what's the point of that? It's a great illustration. I just wanted to put it anywhere. No, the point is this. God's word is solid. And you can absolutely depend on it. And when you go to God's word, it gives you direction. It gives you comfort. It gives you encouragement. It gets you back on the right path. Jeremiah read, or Daniel read Jeremiah, realized 70 years was the determined by sovereignty, and he realized he was in the 67th year. There, there was going to be a change happening. Israel was going back 
to Jerusalem. Okay. The third thing that happens is Daniel, after making the discovery, after understanding sovereignty and what God's plan was, he prayed. He prayed, verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication. Now think about this. He, this is what's interesting. He prayed for the very thing the Bible had assured him of would happen. Or to say it this way, he began to pray that God would do what God had already said he would do. Now doesn't that sound kind of odd? In fact, James Boyce has a pretty interesting quote. He says this, quote, There are misguided Calvinists, <laughs> by the way, I'm a Calvinist, who would conclude in such situations that since God had decreed three more years of captivity and a return to Jerusalem after that, there would therefore be nothing they could do. Just sit back and let God work. Daniel knew that although God certainly works according to his own plans and timetable, he nevertheless does this through people and through people's prayers. End quote. That's a great quote. That's a great quote. Sometimes, when I mean Calvinism, I'm talking about believing in God's sovereignty. Sometimes that makes us lazy and it should do exactly the opposite. Think of it even this way. I do believe in election. I do believe that God elects people to salvation. By the way, he does not elect people to damnation. That's a wrong thinking. People who think that don't understand scripture. But the point is this. He does choose some for salvation. That should put us on praying ground, not non-praying ground. Why? Because there is this absolute hope out there that God will actually raise the dead. In other words, we're dead in our trespasses and sins and God is going to make us alive so that we can believe. The fact of sovereignty makes my prayers, I know that something can happen. See, if I didn't believe in sovereignty, I would say, well, what's the point of praying on a dead person? It's hopeless. No, no, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. So actually, sovereignty makes us better people to pray. Actually, it makes us more evangelistic, not less, if we understand it properly. So here we, see, here we see Daniel praying for something that God has already said in his word he's going to do. I'm going to bring the people back. And he's going to pray about God bringing the people back. Very, very important. In fact, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says this. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's what 1 John's saying. Listen, we know his will, therefore we can ask for it because it's his will. In fact, the second part of verse 15, 1 John 5, 15, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Why? Because we know it's his will. That's sovereignty. We know it's his will, therefore we can pray knowing that he's going to answer. Why? Because it's his will, and he's sovereign. That's the setting. Let's look at the components in Daniel's prayer. The components. Again, verse 3. I set my face towards the Lord. That idea of setting my face is resolutely giving his attention to the Lord. That, the word is concentration. We find it again, as I said earlier, very difficult in our society to concentrate, don't we? So very, very difficult. You know, I even watch kids, and even my own kids sometimes, and you know, no, let's put the... Uh, iPhones down at the dinner table. You are not allowed to text while we're eating. Oh, I can't. 
I almost want to say sometimes to, you know, someone like that is, you know, hey, would you like $1,000? And they're like, they don't even hear me. Well, I guess you don't because you never responded. <laughs> Concentrate, but what? What did Daniel, when he went to prayer, he set his face towards the Lord. He concentrated. Actually, Colossians 4, verse 2, is, is saying similar. He, he's, he's, it's, an, it's in a command. He, Colossians 4, 2 says, continue earnestly in prayer. The New American says, be devoted in prayer. Be devoted. And the idea is to be focused, to be concentrated. In other words, when you're praying, your mind is not wandering. Very difficult. The poet and preacher John Doan said it this way, I throw myself down in my chamber and I call and invite God. And when he is there, I neglect God. How? For the noise of a fly, for the rattling of a coach, for the whining of a door. I sit down to pray and then my mind wanders. I remember uh, Brendan telling me one time, he said, you know, uh, eliminate to concentrate. And I think in prayer you have to do the same thing. Eliminate stuff. Eliminate stuff in your life to be able to concentrate. That's a big picture, but it's also a picture of prayer. If we want to focus on the Lord in prayer, we have to eliminate things out of our life. As we go, we have to set our face. By the way, it's interesting that we see the sequence. Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah, then he goes to prayer. And I think that's a really good application for prayer. Read the scriptures, get your well full, and then go to prayer. Why? Because then you are praying about things you've just studied and learned and read and meditated on, right? Your prayers become more biblical because you're not just the list, you know, Lord, give me, give me, give me, I need, I need, I need, help, help, help. Those are all, give us our daily bread. I mean, we should ask, but sometimes our prayers are nothing more than asking, when it really, see, for Daniel, it goes beyond that. It, he's focusing on the Lord. Why? Because he's filled his soul up with the scriptures before he uh, drops to his knees in prayer. So concentration's the first thing. Second, this is a fill-in supplication. <coughs> to make requests by prayer and supplications. He's praying. He's asking. See, again, I'm not saying that asking is, but you're going to see his whole prayer, and there's so much more than just the asking. By the way, the word supplication, as one guy said, gives the picture of a servant kneeling and pleading his or her case before a king. There's a, there's a passion with that word. There's a vulnerability. There's a, I am the servant and you are the king attitude there. So with supplication. What's the third thing? Self-denial with fasting. With fasting. Fasting is essentially a method of prioritizing. Now, what do I mean by that? It's a way of saying to God that he is more important than everything else, even things that give us life and pleasure. When you fast and eliminate food, that's something that gives us life and pleasure. But when we fast, by the way, Jesus did say twice in, in Matthew 6, not if you fast, but what? When or as you are fasting. There's an assumption there. We are going to fast. It doesn't say that you have to fast on the first uh, Monday of the month. It doesn't say that before Resurrection Sunday you have to fast. It just says when you fast. The idea is this. There's going to be times in your life 
when even the pleasures and the necessity of food is set aside because you want to prioritize even more on, on your relationship with God. By the way, you know that if that's true in your life, because if you go to a fast and all day all you're thinking about is food, by the way, that actually exposes your heart. It just tells you something. That though you had good intentions, the priority is not with God. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying it, it, it just exposed your heart and my heart. If all day I'm just thinking about, boy, I just can't wait till 6 o'clock tonight because that's when I can eat. And again, you may give up one meal, you may give up three, you may give up, you know, a person in my family, I think, gave it up for literally 20 days, I think it was. But that's not the important point. The idea is this. It's the priority. With Daniel, it showed self-denial that he was prioritizing his relationship with God. He needed to just, Lord, I need to pour my whole heart, and I'm even willing to give up the things that give me pleasure. How about the fourth thing? Humility. Because while fasting, Daniel put on sackcloth and ashes. Again, that's a sign of deep sorrow, deep grief, deep humility. By the way, all this, you know, you put those two together, the idea of fasting, and you, and you think of the obvious illustration of the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. You know, I fast, I do all this, and he's beating his, I mean, he's just, you know, try, in Luke 18, he's trying to just say how good he is, self-righteous, Pharisee as he is. Remember what the task gatherer says? God, be merciful to be a sinner. You know, and, and that's the humility that this needs. You know, this is the type of humility that we're looking at in Daniel. He sees God as merciful. He sees him as sovereign. He just says, Lord, I'm going to you, and I, I'm willing to even do sackcloth and ashes to show my grief, my sorrow, my humility before you. And then finally, we see him as honest. Uh, verse 4 says, and made confession. It's middle way down. He made confession. You know what's an interesting thing? If you start with chapter, or verse 4, how many times Daniel said we? I think it's like 11 or 12 times. We. What he's doing is, he's identifying himself with the people of God who have sinned. By the way, he's not saying that he's, he's not a sinner. This is not just a grand, uh, you know, grandstanding. In, chap, in, in verse 20, it says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin. And throughout this, this whole passage, verses one, verse one, uh, 1 to 19, you see him going back to we. We have sinned. We have disobeyed. He intimately connects himself with the people of God. See, sometimes when it comes to our sins, we excuse ourselves, or we just point to the other person and say, well, you know, they certainly need to confess. But here he's saying, no, I am confessing with them. Look at verse 5. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants and prophets. Uh, verse 7. If you have a new American, it says, we are covered with with shame. I think the other version is us. Verse 8, we are covered with shame because we have sinned. Verse 9, though we have rebelled against him. Verse 10, we have not obeyed. Verse 11, we have sinned. We, we, verse 14, 15, 18, we. He's connecting himself. True intercessory. It's not them, it's us. By the way, it's community. I'm part of the nation, and we have gone astray. 
It's honesty. By the way, one of the hardest things to say is, I have sinned. Isn't that hard? There's some people who, who uh, you know, I, I, I'm told, I'm not saying any of you particular, I'm just saying in passing in life, you know, that you're, you know, she never confesses her sin. She's never admitted he's wrong. That's so sad. That is definitely not what a Christian or at least a mature Christian does. Daniel would be considered the most spiritual man, I would believe, in Babylon. And he is thoroughly confessing his sin. Though he could easily, in our standards, look and say, well, he did it. They're the problem. He says, we. Let's look at the last parts quickly. The content of Daniel's prayer. Now, this is just splits up very easily in four parts. If you have an outline, you can follow along. First of all, praise to our God. Verse 4, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. By the way, those who love him and keep his commandments can only be kept if God's spirit is working through them. These people hadn't. But what he's saying is, listen, you are awesome and you are merciful and you are sovereign. And this is the second last part. And you are going to work so that we can keep your covenant. We can keep your commandments. We can do what you say. He says the same type of thing in exaltation in verse 7. That you, Lord, are righteous. Verse 9, you are merciful and 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 have forgiveness. In verse 14, you're righteous. Do you see what he keeps doing? Throughout this prayer, he starts with it, and then throughout it, he interjects the fact of how great God is. You know, our prayers, if they're truly biblical, need to be exalting Christ, exalting the Father, exalting the Spirit, exalting God. Our Father who art in heaven, right? Our Father. Our Father. That's exalting him, who art in heaven. Analyze your prayer. <laughs> is it ex- exalting God or is it, again, just a list of, the Lord, this is what we need? So the first thing is he praises God. Look at the second part. He confesses his sin, especially starting in verse 5. We have sinned. Now, what I want you to notice here is how many times he confesses a wrong, but with a different word. I have sinned, that means missing the mark. And we have committed iniquity, that means distorted God's law. We have done wickedly, in other words, done known wrong. And have rebelled, in other words, defied authority. Even by departing, well, let's see here, even uh, departing, the word departing means to turn aside from the way, from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded. That means, nor obeyed your servants, the prophets, who spoke in in your name. And he just goes down. And he keeps going back. I mean, I should have counted how many times. He uses seven different words for iniquity. That's the point. He thoroughly confesses not only his sins, but the sins of of Israel. Have you ever gone to God and confessed, Oh, Lord, you know I was wrong. Let me just go on with life. He thoroughly confessed the sin. By the way, this is just one prayer. I'm sure, you know, he pre- prayed three times a day. I'm sure he continually went to the Lord. To, Lord, this is what we have done. I liked what one guy who, who often spoke on prayer said this. The period of our devotions must contain a moment of pain. 
A moment of pain. Is pain good? Yeah, pain is good in its right circumstance. Aren't you glad you have pain in your hands when you touch a hot object? A person with leprosy doesn't have that pain. They just get burned. But pain. When it comes to our consciences, when it comes to confession, there should be a moment of pain. He goes on. It is not God's intention that we should wreathe or struggle under it or linger in it. I mean, that's not God's intention. But specific and sincere confession of our own sin is no joyous exercise. When I confess, there should be some pain. Lord, I, did, I was wrong. I sinned. I committed iniquity. I transgressed. That's why he's using all the different types of words. He wanted to be thorough. By the way, verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. You're holy, but to us shame of face. In other words, our shame is before you. That's what he's... Oh, you're merciful and forgiving, verse 9. Though we have rebelled, use the same word as verse 5, against him, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his ways. He's very thorough. This is, this is huge application to you and your devotions before God. And even as you help your children to repent, make sure if there's a certain amount of pain. That's why actually chastisement is important disobedience, there should be a certain amount of pain. That's why Proverbs 28 says, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them. You forsake sin, and then you'll find mercy when you see there's pain associated. Many of us, we don't forsake our sin because there's never been much pain. Oh, we confess our sins, but there's not pain associated with it. It should be when we turn from our sin that we literally turn and say, I never want to go back there again. That is so horrendous, that is so sinful, wicked, rebellious, I never want to do that again, and therefore become radical in our change. How about verse 11? Now he goes from praise and confession to acknowledgement of, right, of the righteousness of God's judgment. Basically this, Lord, you are righteous in chastising us, Israel and us. Okay, You have been righteous. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your laws. And has departed as, so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us. You're righteous. We're here because of our sin, not because of your lack of faithfulness. And by the way, that was very clear because he says it's written, and then verse 13, it is written in the law of Moses. It was written in Deuteronomy 28. <coughs> it was also written in Deuteronomy 30. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you do this and disobey me, I'll curse you. Very, very clear. It wasn't like took Israel by surprise. If you do not walk in my ways, you will be chastened. That was the bottom line. So what does, uh, what does Daniel say? You know, Lord, what, what we're dealing with, what I'm dealing with, I was yanked from my family at probably age 14 and brought to this foreign land for the last 60-some years, but I confess it was our sin and not yours. Boy, sometimes when we... Do we ever shake our hand at God? Yeah, Lord, I want you to bless me, but I know that you put me in this spot, and I'm angry about it anyways. Daniel says, there's no anger on my part. I, we deserved it. Not they deserved it. We deserved it. In fact, he uses a different word in verse 13, that we might turn from our iniquities. That's a different word that he hadn't used yet. And understand your truth. And then finally, a shift in the prayer to the pleading for God's mercy. This is verse 15. 
And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and, and made yourself a name as it, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. He repeats it. By the way, he uses the illustration of Egypt. That was hundreds of years earlier, but what he's saying is, listen, you were faithful then and you're faithful now. But then he says, verse 16, the first petition is, remove your wrath. According to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away. Now he just said, listen, we have sinned, but Lord, please turn your wrath. And then the second part, is verse 17. Grant forgiveness. Hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. For the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, Jerusalem, which is desolate. O oh God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes. See our desolation. We are in great need. Why? For your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of what? Your great mercy. Lord, we are in need. Please, because of your mercy, I know you're merciful. Show your mercy. And then he closes out and he tells us the why. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay. Now, again, he is praying for something he's already read in Jeremiah. Do not delay for your, your own sake, my God, for your city, your people are called by your name. You know what he's saying? Lord, do all this, not because we've been righteous, we've been sinful and wicked. Do this for your own glory. See, the prayer is this. Lord, do what you've already said you're going to do, but do it for yourself. Do it because this honors you. Do this because this is for your name. You know that Daniel was a very godly man because when he's praying, it's not about himself. Oh, he's confessing corporately, but he's praying and asking for the prayer to be answered because of God. Lord, do it for your sake. That's what we mean by do it. You know, when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just attack on. What are we saying? Lord, because of your purpose, for your glory, for your, your plan, do it. I am praying for you. I am praying so that you would be magnified. That's a biblical prayer. That's one of the most biblical prayers in all of Scripture, done by one of the most godly men. Remember, Daniel, nothing negative was ever said about Daniel. You can't find any area in Scripture that says Daniel did this wrong. He wasn't perfect. We just know he sinned. He confessed it. But the point is this. He was a mature, godly man. That's how a mature, godly Christian prays. Let's stand as we worship. Do you want to be radically transformed? See, sometimes we struggle with sins year after year. Same ones. And, and you wonder why. You know, the Lord wants to transform. It's his will that we become sanctified. He's given us his spirit, powerful Holy Spirit. He's given us his word that is powerful. I, I think this is the key, quite honestly, for many. We don't repent like Daniel. See, what does that say? Open the blind, unlock the deaf ears. Well, we're crying out in desperation. And yeah, I yell and swear sometimes, but uh, yeah, I have an envious heart and I covet, but uh, yeah, my kids really irritate me, and sometimes I whack them out of total anger, but you know, I try to love my wife, and yet I, my eyes have been wandering, but we're not crying out for desperation. We're not really 
going before the Lord and saying, we have sinned and committed iniquity and have done wickedly and we have rebelled and departed from your precepts. In other words, there's not pain, deep pain that says, I have gone the wrong path and Lord, you are fully in your right to chasten me as one of your children. But Lord, I'm pleading for mercy and I'm pleading that you really show me even even to a greater degree, my blind eye, my, my deaf ears, my heart has been hardened because this sin has been so often confessed that I just think I'm going to keep going down this path. But Lord, I want to make a directional change. I want it to be painful so that I truly do forsake it because I want to be tra- radically transformed. But to be radically transformed means that you radically confess and radically forsake, Right? And so I just encourage you, this isn't just a prayer about another man. This is how you are radically transformed as a believer. Because we are radical in the way that we look at our sin. It's not just, well, no, Lord, I have sinned, and I don't want to ever do that again. But if you're here and have never received Christ, you may say, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's the same way that we go before the Lord. When you realize how great a sinner you are, and you are are condemned by the Holy God, And you reach out and you say, but I know that Jesus Christ paid for my sin on the cross. He died, was buried, and was resurrected. He can give me new life. And you put your faith and trust in what Christ did. He will save you. But the same beating of the chest saying, God, have mercy, mercy on me, I'm a sinner, actually is the same way we as Christians go before him when we sit, Lord, have mercy on me. I don't want to ever do that again. And my prayer today right now is this, that if you're caught in the sin, that you will see the horrendousness and the rebellion of you being caught in that sin and that you would be willing to completely repent. Again, there's many more things to do than just, but that's the first step. Lord, I see how bad it really is and I want to change. Father, again, we thank you for your holiness. I thank you for your righteousness. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness. Lord, I thank you that you are working in each one of our lives. I thank you for your spirit who gives us power. I thank you for your spirit who gives us conviction and you convict our hearts through your word. And I pray that we would not be stuck. I pray that we would not be caught by sin, especially because we have not fully repented of it. That our expectation is that we're going to go back. Lord, may it be that it just repulses us that we just want to walk with you. Lord, we're we're not going to be perfect. We understand. But Lord, give us that heart that says we want to walk with you in purity of heart, purity of soul. Father, I just ask that you would pain us when we sin, that we, our consciences would be very uh, sensitized to what your spirit wants so that when we do rebel, that there would be a lot of pain that goes along with it to bring us back on the right path. Father, I ask that you would do this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.